You're listening to Contesting Wrestling Premium. And Premium the newest list- installment of the Hollywood Backlot Wrestling Film Club. This is uh, going to be a real first for premium listeners. One, this is going to be our first premium guest. This is the first guest who we are locking behind the paywall. Um, and this was also going to be the first episode. I think that I think our first episode of all contesting wrestling where what we watched was just an unmitigated joy for me. <laughs> because, like everything else, it's always I mean, let's be honest, because it wasn't we it's not wrestling. We didn't watch wrestling and the, we watched a movie that was good. In comparison to the previous films that we have covered, which have ranged from abysmally terrible to, I guess this is better than being assaulted physically. Uh, those the first the, one yeah. was not that. Did you do The Wrestler? But you must have done Aronofsky's Wrestler. No, no well, no, we haven't no, done no, good no. movies. No, we yeah, haven't. We have... we, so far, we've done uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown uh, starring Rowdy oh, Roddy I Piper. I am familiar with Hell Comes to Frogtown. Okay, and yeah. and surfs up to nice. the animated feature, Love it. starring which, several wrestlers, which we thought was going to be a total train wreck and fun to in that way, but it just turned out to be a subpar kids movie that like wasn't even fun to like shit on or anything. So yeah, like it was it was okay, yes. which is not which is like of all in all media, okay is the yes. least interesting. Yeah, stuff it's the most review. damning. Yeah. So but let's let Ben. So yeah, Ben, in- introduce our guest. Okay. So first of all, today we're we're covering uh, the 1991 Coen Brothers film Barton Fink, which is much better than okay. <laughs> Um, and our guest is also much better than okay. He is a professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. He is the author of, and I'm going to list all four books because the titles are all excellent, um, How to Read Superhero Comics and Why, Imaginary Biographies, Misreading the Lives of the Poets, The Future of Comics, The Future of Men, Matt Fraction's Casanova, and Aestheticism, Evil, Homosexuality, and Hannibal, If Oscar Wilde Ate People. I am extremely pleased (laughs) to introduce Jeff Clock. Thank you for being on the Contesting Wrestling Podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I love it. I love it. I'm so goddamn excited. I need to read that fourth one, man. I fucking loved Hannibal. Um, yeah, don't don't buy that book. Uh, it's I'll I'll send you a PDF. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, it's a, it's excellent. A yeah. it's, a, it's a it's like two of my books are hundred dollar academic monographs designed to be sold oh. not to people but to libraries. And and I uh, yeah uh, my 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 best work is this kind of thing. The books are what I do to get promotions. Uh, this is this is the actual work. The the, the books are for the, the penguins, way. you know. I, I studied I studied uh, music theory in college, and I have a number of um, uh, musical texts that I spent entirely too much money on for the, the especially for the information I got out of them, uh, which I could have found on the internet. Uh, I think that attitude, Jeff, uh, figures in a lot to what's going on in this film. And I think, like, you know, as someone who teaches in a public institution and who is interested in superheroes and what might be regarded as, like, lowbrow media or whatever, you know, I, for me as well, um, I used to teach at a public institution. Now it's I teach at the cheapest private institution in um, 
in New York. But also, let's but, be honest, there's barely a division between public and private anymore. I mean, because the the, sure. the, the the private concerns have come in and eaten up a lot of what you would think of as the public education sector. So mm. there's, there's this is a, a specious distinction pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, but I think we're both people who, you know, um, are academics, but, you know, are much more comfortable speaking to a more public audience than an academic one in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, uh, so today, yeah, today we are watching Barton Fink by the Coen brothers, a movie that um I had not seen before. I <laughs> love the Coen brothers. Um, I feel bad that I have not seen all of their films because often if pressed for what my favorite movie of all time is, once again, I'm not, as we were discussing before the podcast, I'm kind of bad at ranking things and I almost don't believe in it. But if pressed for my favorite movie, I will often say Miller's Crossing um, because just for a lot of if you've seen Miller's Crossing, you understand why. Um, And I don't I the. The Coen Brothers. Now that we've been doing this podcast a while, I I feel more comfortable making comparisons like this. I feel like the Coen Brothers are like the Chris Jericho of filmmaking, <laughs> where in the last oh, with the last few years, you're like maybe they might pound for pound be the best. They might just like or like you know maybe like maybe not the best, but like they've just have the highest hit ratio. They've been the best for the longest, where they just. Pretty much every movie they make is unbelievably fantastic, and they've been knocking it out of the park since the 80s, like, yeah. pretty consistently. Yeah, they're really I, good. I had seen this film before, but it was when in the theater when I was seven years old. <laughs> my parents took me to see it, what? and I did not hey, get much out of it, as you might have expected. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but I very much enjoyed it this time, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, I, I, I had often heard that this was the most surreal Coen Brothers film, the the Coen Brothers film that most bordered on like Lynchian style, and I I mean that seems that seems fairly accurate, I would say. Yeah, like, watching it, I'm like these guys have at least seen Eraserhead, <laughs> and uh, so they've they've taken some of that influence in. As it's like an earlier movie, like in in their catalog, you can definitely like they're still paying tribute to the people that came before them as artists. Um, which, you know, I thought the movie was great, so I don't, I don't want this phrase to be misconstrued, but if you're into that kind of thing, this is definitely the movie for you. Um, whereas, like, I don't know, I'm a, bi- I'm a big fan of, like, Lebowski, you know, and at that point, not that you can't see their influences in it, but that's just them. Sure. They have, they have completely hit their groove there, and they don't the- have, like, you know, they don't have the Eraserhead-esque things. They got the quick fantasy sequence for two minutes, and then it's back to just bowling. And Jeff, movie- uh, you well. Let me just say, Jeff. You know, you are among other things a scholar of David Lynch. Yeah, that's my. Um, that's one of my I, top I, three things. I attended your your lecture on Mahal and Drive, where you showed the film and and talked about it. And I feel like that. That lecture, by the way, I, yeah. it's it's an also, incredible event that everyone should witness if it comes around ever pu- again. Also, one of my one I would say I is a movie I like as much as Miller's Crossing. Yeah. I would say, like is, is is up there. Yeah, definitely. And I I feel like uh, having been through your analysis of Mulholland Drive really prepared me well for this film and and helped me understand this this film better than I would have without it. And I I feel like what he what they what this movie does, um that is that is really important if you're going to make like a strange surrealistic film that doesn't quite make sense is that you watch it 
and it could ha- and uh, I f- it could have an answer. Like I feel like I could go. I I had the urge to go on YouTube and be like and um, watch like the explainer videos and see if it may- if it lined up with my own things. But it also doesn't need it. It also can just be what it is. Like Mulholland. Part of why Mul- Mulholland Drive is so great is like Mulholland Drive is a movie that you can sit there and try to work out like what where the puzzle pieces fit and what it all means and like what's the real story happening underneath but it can all you can also just let it wash over you like a like an experience and have it sort of play your emotions and it doesn't and it, it doesn't matter what the quote unquote real story is about cuz you just have a good time watching it and it makes you feel things well that's that's some of the hallmarks of just art like good art uh, the the person experiencing it will have a different experience than the person sitting next to them intaking the same art and like regarding like yeah we you could go and and analyze the hell out of a movie like this and go to YouTube and see what everybody's takes are and Jeff will in just a moment out. actually and can I, and can, can, yes, I, can I interrupt Doc for, sure. for a second but, um, yeah. you said something really important and I, this is like a, a really crucial thing I think to seize on is that is that the person sitting next to you can have a very different experience than the one you're having. Um, I think oh, yeah. it's also crucial to remember that a single person can have two contradictory res- – like those two people sitting next to each other having different responses can both be in your head. So I just want to – I, oh, I yeah. think j- – where, jump- where on the graph can uh, must and cannot intersect? Yes, <laughs> uh, the great robot monster. Um, I think there, there's a specific scene towards the end of the movie where that really is like palatable, that um, – uh, dissonance in your in your attitudes towards what's going on uh, involving John Goodman, but <laughs> um, uh, John Goodman's a treasure. But uh, I think the 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 point that I was about to make, and I think it's an important one, is that when this movie came out, it's like what ninety one. Yep. You know, you you could not immediately go get a hundred or a thousand different takes on it. <clears throat> Even if you saw it in the theater in New York, like maybe you could talk to the other people who saw it who were probably serious movie people at that point. Or you could read the review in the post, some old guy saying, what the hell was that? Or you could read the review in The, the Voice, voice I was, was going to and probably <laughs> didn't mention the movie at all during the review. Was the- so you really had to think about it yourself, I, I, which I, is, can be lost these days a little bit because of the overwhelming uh, in-your-faceness of the review culture. In, in an early form, in a pre-internet form of something that we all do on the internet now, which is um, specifically seek out infuriating opinions so we can get mad... Uh, right. And experience that rush, and then later on, be like, "Why do I do that? Why? What's wrong with me? Why am I doing this?" <laughs> but in the moment, we totally are into it. Um, I would often uh, f- wa- find a movie, you know, see a movie that I really liked, and then go find a copy of the New York Press to read Armand White's reviews because Armand White is a is in many ways uh, like yeah, is a pre-internet troll, a, a guy, but also. It's very wrestling. Nobody has ever been able to figure out if Armin White is serious or not, right? Nobody's ever been able to figure out how real. It, these days, it's I'm lean towards he just is actually like that because he's just still fucking doing it. But it's um yeah. yeah if you don't know who I'm talking about, listeners, uh, go go find any of his <laughs> reviews, and literally any of them. It's the man. The man is a is a surgeon of human anger. So, speaking of wrestling, given that this is a wrestling, wrestling podcast, one might wonder why we watched this film. 
because it's not uh, immediately apparent if you've just kind of heard of it, um, the what the connection to wrestling is. So by way of a little bit of plot details, um, I'll, I'm going to try to introduce those connections and some uh, historical details that uh, might shed light on what's going on a little bit. So um, in, in the film, Barton Fink is this uh, playwright in New York, and he's been somewhat successful. And he goes to Hollywood because uh, maybe he'll make some money writing for, for the movies. Uh, and he says at one point, you know, well, he, he doesn't really want to go to Hollywood because he's like, oh, well, you know, I really want to do this living theater that, you know, captures the experience of the common man or something like that. And my immediate thought is, well, the common man watches movies, right? Not, not Broadway plays and wrestling. Right. The common man watches wrestling. So he goes to Hollywood and he's uh, charged by the head of the studio, Capitol Pictures, to make a wrestling film. And so I was really interested as soon as I saw that part. I was like, all right, I need to, like, look up something about wrestling films in the. So this movie takes place in 1941. Now, I knew a little bit about extremely early wrestling films Uh, in the late 19th century, some of the earliest films were films of wrestling matches. And this was when they were probably more legitimate contests, though there's still some question about that. And going into the first decade of the 20th century, there were films made of wrestling matches and also reproductions of great wrestling matches that hadn't been filmed with actors standing in for the wrestlers or different wrestlers standing in for the wrestlers. So the history of film and the history of wrestling is actually somewhat symbiotic. So a lot of the tropes and and when we get into like, you know, what makes a wrestling film and Audrey's scene in the, in the film where she, she explains that, which I think is like the crucial scene in the entire movie. Um, uh, you know, that's has a lot to do with, with the fact that wrestling as uh, the tropes of wrestling developed hand in hand with the tropes of Hollywood films. Now getting into the thirties. So the first big modern wrestling boom was in the twenties with the gold dust trio of Sandow, Mont and, um, Strangler Lewis, who sort of developed the basic conventions. That's uh, that's Ed the Strangler Lewis, yes. not to be confused with Evan the Strangler Lewis, right? Who came before him? I believe I pointed that out on a very early episode of this podcast. I, and I was also I'd like to remind some people. I was just about to ask you, oh, is it based on uh, on Eugene Sandow? And then I remembered that I asked you that in like episode two, and it, the it Billy was Sandow, not. Billy Sandow. Billy well, no, no, no. I was asking if if the wrestler Billy Sandow, if if the name oh, was right. at all connected to legendary strongman and early bodybuilding icon Eugene Sandow, right. which very well might be the case. Um, so. Uh, so by the end of the 20s, though, you know, I think with the Depression uh, and then the, the coming war, wrestling kind of took a dip. But I, ha- I I wasn't able to find a lot of information about it, but it seems like there were a lot of wrestling films in the early 30s. Specifically. So in the film, um, the studio head wants Barton Fink to write a film for actor Wallace Beery. Okay, who was a real actor, who was a big deal in the 20s and, and 30s. By the 40s, he was already pretty old, which explains why the studio head is like, oh, can, you know, is he too old for a romantic interest? But Wallace Beery starred in a wrestling film in 1932 called Flesh. This film was co-written by an uncredited William Faulkner 
who came to Hollywood to make money because he was broke and hated his experience there <laughs> and wrote this fucking wrestling film. Holy Wait, shit. Is that, and that has to be the off. Then the the, the writer character in the movie. Is, all right, W.P. Okay. Mayhew. W.P. Yeah, Mayhew. Exactly. And right, to right. some degree, Fink himself. Yes. Who right, now right. is very obviously a, a a caricature of William Faulkner, now that I think about it, where yeah. it's just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that that blew my mind when I discovered it. Um, now, I want I want to hear um, I, I want to hear Jeff's um, opinion on this. Jeff, what was your perception of this movie's relationship to wrestling as somebody who knows as much about wrestling as I did in episode one of this podcast? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a, a, a good working knowledge of wrestling. I mean, to me, to me, it, it I, I just tossed it in there in my mind them asking him to do a wrestling picture it would be like now them asking for a superhero movie or sure. right it, it to me it just it was any kind of like basic simple like she says right it's a, there's usually a good wrestler and a bad wrestler and he has to protect a, a kid or play. a morality play yeah. right i mean this is what superhero movies are i mean in fact i remember laughing really hard during iron man 3 um where he has to protect not a dame but a kid <laughs> like, I, I remember sitting in the theater and being like maybe <laughs> you know, like it's the same like it's it, so to me that that was that was really my takeaway from it except for the fact um that there's a so it could be any genre i guess you know some kind of whatever generic thing um except for the fact that towards the end of the movie um they make this connection to i want to see you know, we want to. We want, it's about men in tights. We we don't want to see someone wrestling with their soul. Um, and it was that yeah. that particular yeah. language. Wrestling feels really integral to the movie because, and I hate to say this, because of the phrase "wrestling with your soul," um, which and 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 that also and, and it has these biblical resonances of like Jacob wrestling the angel um, and getting the name Israel right that that from from the from the Torah. Am I getting that name right? Is it Jacob? Probably Jacob. Yeah, uh, you're asking the wrong crowd. <laughs> the, 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 the point is, is there, there, there's, 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 it's Jacob. It's Jacob wrestling the, the, the angel in the Bible, but also the idea of wrestling with your soul. It, it's, it, that's part of the punchline that wouldn't be there if it was a superhero movie or a cowboy movie. Because we don't, you know, you wouldn't and say think, wrangling with your soul. That's not an expression. <laughs> right. As opposed to. And I think part of the point there and why it's, to me, it, it's about wrestling uh, in general, why wrestling is there is that wrestling in a way is, and to put it paradoxically, it's so literal that it's a metaphor for everything. Yeah, agreed. Right, so, so, you know, what is, and I think part of the point of the movie is that all stories are basically reducible to this simplistic morality play of the good guy versus the bad guy. And, And that with wrestling, where it's actually like literally two bodies struggling for dominance, that represents any kind of struggle between ideals, between nations, yeah. between, you know, anything. And so, and that's why wrestling really, for me, and that's one of the reasons I love wrestling, is I feel like it's a distillation of narrative and, yeah. and of storytelling into its, like, more, most sort of, like, primal form. The other thing I want to say about wrestling really quick is just, I was talking, I mentioned that, like, wrestling with your soul is a phrase, and it pops up literally in the movie as wrestling, a wrestling picture. But there's two other moments in Barton Fink where uh, an English idiom is handled very literally. Um, And one of them is, don't lose your head. 
Um, and there are multiple references, right? There's, I mean, it's absurd um, the number of times, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to lose my head. I can't, I can't trade my head in for a new one. The ball all balled up at the head office where there's head, there's hope. You know, the contents of your head are the property of capital pictures. Let's keep our heads. Guy's funny in the head. Um, and the other one is, is walk a mile in another man's shoes, um, which is exactly what Barton Fink needs to do to see something from someone else's perspective. And also in a little joke, he literally puts on John Goodman's shoes and starts writing really well until John Goodman knocks on the door. So the movie's interested in literalizing idioms in that way. And it also it to me the um the most the most immediate uh or the most apparent like kind of meta theme of the movie that it had in common with wrestling is that it is it's a movie that is concerned with how to present authenticity and how like the process of creating something that is fictionalized that feels authentic which if you don't know anything like if you went in not knowing anything about wrestling you could easily be like oh well that's that's what movies are right like movies are trying to present it all but i i feel like now with my knowledge of wrestling and knowing that it's like it really what what makes wrestling interesting is that it is this blend of of fictionalization and theater with like unreproducible authenticity like with a kind of authenticity that just really can't come from even a great actor and uh, and a great filmmaker and a, and a huge budget or something like that and Barton himself is somebody who like and it's this is also a movie about about being uh, about being a writer and procrastinating. Um, but it's like Barton is somebody who you know he is lauded for his authentic re- representation of the working man, but he is also completely uninterested in actually hearing anything about the working man, and does he not is lauded. He is lauded for his representation of the working man by the soup, by the caricatures yes. of the New York upper class <laughs> of the 40s, who also don't know yeah. anything about the working it's 100% man. 100% correct. The kind of people who, at the end of the Depression, while most of the working men had already gone off to World War II, could go see Broadway shows. And the, the most revealing moment, I feel like, of Barton's personality in the entire movie is when you know like you know because he has all of these there's all these times throughout the movie he's a very under under, he's a very under um uh he's a very soft-spoken character he's very like very low energy level very like withdrawn and the few times that he really comes out tends to be when he's going in some rant about like the meaning of art and all this and then at one point john goodman's just like oh like do you know anything about wrestling he's like no i don't really i don't really care to learn anything about the act itself is the is the term he uses which is there that's every that's everything you need to know it's a guy who is really concerned with presenting authenticity but also has no does not care about about it in any meaningful way just his conception of it he also tends to get fired up when he's being super hypocritical, right? Like when he's uh, talking shit about Mayhu and his drinking and all that, when of Frank course, William as soon as he's offered a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and the way he treats Audrey and all that stuff where like, you know, he's just obviously trying to get in her pants and um, yeah. And, and like, and, and what he does is he continually plays out this kind of fantastical morality play. Between himself and Mayhu, between um, uh, himself and the studio and all that stuff. And just like 
continue by trying to present himself as this great auteur just falls into the same kind of hackneyed tropes that he would, you know, wants to avoid. Like I like at the end, uh, you know, towards the end of the film when the studio head just explains blatantly what he wants as though it was stupid that Barton didn't already know because you're coming to write a, 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 a script for a movie. <laughs> we want wrestlers, action, you know, boom, these guys are fighting, we have a winner and a loser, and people go home happy. But Barton actually only knows one thing, which is let me find the center of some tortured soul, and, you know, but nobody, <laughs> nobody really cares. That's the problem, you know. Nobody really cares about that when it comes to doing what you do in a Hollywood movie, which is make the most money possible at the widest audience possible. I actually... It's not something he had to deal with before, but he did do it. I sympathized with that as, like, a professor who, you know, will will assign something very simple. Uh Like, I want the students to just analyze a text... And, you know, just make it clear that they understood what they were reading. And like the the brighter students tend to go off on these like rants about their right. own personal views on things without actually doing the thing that I asked for. And, it's, <laughs> and it, I feel like there is a there's a strong suggestion that it's like, you know, the play that he is lauded for is, you know, it's it's implied that it's basically his like either his life or like a, at least a life that he had firsthand experience of. Um, you know, cause he, he grew up on Fulton street and like, he wrote this play about fishmongers, which that's who was on Fulton street at the time. And I loved, there's a moment, um, uh, when he's like, when he's been in, uh, when he's been in there trying to write for, I, time is very slippy in this movie, but you get the feeling that he's, he's been in the hotel for some period of time trying to write and we get a view of what he's written and it's literally... It's like it's it's he's barely written anything out. He's added like two sentences to the thing he wrote at the very beginning. It's something he's written before because he's setting this movie on Fulton Street and you hear fishmongers cry just like the play that he wrote. And then the next line is something like, oh, there's no traffic now, but like there you'll probably hear traffic later. And it's just like it's such a. 101 like hack writer thing that is like also a thing you have to unlearn as a fiction writer to write about cool stuff that will happen later on down the road or write about things that are going to happen later. Yeah. It's like, no, write about what's happening right now in the scene. Particularly like, in a film script though, where his his setting is we don't hear traffic, perhaps we will. Like, what does that mean? Like, no one's gonna read that. Like, my, my, my favorite, my favorite stage direction in any play is from a Beckett play. Um, and Samuel Beckett writes, you know, he's describing the room, and he's like, "There's a chair, and there's a wall." And he writes, "The door is imperceptibly ajar." Like, you mean closed? <laughs> if, if it's imperceptible, like how? You mean closed, right? The, the audience sees a closed door right. imperceptibly yeah, like, ajar. Like, who are lunatic. these directions for? <laughs> like, how that's how is that even going to impact like the actor's performance at all? Like, how is yeah, that the, a note that's going to inform? How is the set inform... designer supposed to yeah. communicate that the door is imperceptibly ajar? <laughs> I did. I did have a note in the, throughout all this, like watching like Barton, like have all these fucking opinions but not do anything and just be kind of I was like if it, if this if it was said in the modern day Barton would be a podcaster. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, he would be he would be a guy who's constantly saying he's going to start a podcast <laughs> and what it's about and what he doesn't like about, you know, he'd 
Uh, he'd complain to you about Joe Rogan all day long, and I'd be there being like, I've never listened to the Joe Rogan podcast. And he's like, well, I've listened to every episode, and let me tell you what's wrong with it. And I'm like, I'd really rather you didn't. I'm not interested in listening to his podcast or his opinions. And he's like, he was so wrong last week. I, I really don't care, buddy, for about, you know, two hours. Uh, now, I do. Can you tell I've met that guy before? That's I, You're talking about me. I understand that you're talking about oh, me. Yeah. It's okay. Don't worry You'll about it. You'll complain about the Joe Rogan podcast for 10 minutes, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it could be a personality type for some people. I did feel like uh, this is getting maybe a little too meta that like this movie, to some degree, mirrored like some of the conflicts that we've been having over oh, the podcast Oh, recently. that's not too meta at all. That is actually 100% accurate. Um, I, will, I, I'll, I'll just, I don't really know where else to put this point, so I'll just say it here right now. The one, there was one small issue I had throughout the whole script. There was one th- small thing. I was willing, I bought everything. I love, I bought the sur- surrealness. I loved, I totally bought John Goodman as... A serial killer, possibly a Nazi, possibly the devil, and possibly the last act of the movie is in hell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's that's totally a reasonable interpretation. And, I did not oh, okay. buy the studio executive being like, I respect your artistic intentions and you don't have to tell me about the movie. That was the one thing that I was like, all right, guys, this is a little much yeah. for it's, me to it's, buy. It's, Come part on. Of a, it's part of a pattern in the movie where every single time... Like it, it's part part of the, the pattern of the movie is just a constant reversal of expectations. So like, you when you expect him to get in trouble, he they literally kiss his feet. When you ex- he turns in his masterpiece and they hate it. Um, like guy, he tells him at the end of the movie that that, that you broke Ben Geisler's heart. He loved you. Like did he? <laughs> like that? He like <laughs> did not like seem he to. Hated him. Um, like there's so many moments where just like you don't get. You don't get what you think. Like Audrey's dead body, I think everybody is like, "Oh, it's a dream," and then you're like, "Oh no, it's not." Like it, it's not kind of yeah. Oh yeah. Every, right. And like every every and and again and then also has to do with like Charlie seems like a nice guy and then he turns out to be a psychopath, right? And there's all these little fake outs like, "Oh, Barton's working really hard." Nope, that's the secretary typing in a different location. Uh, yeah, all the typing shots. <laughs> and yet on that note about Charlie ending up being a psychopath and perhaps being the devil and a Nazi. So early in the film, he calls himself a heel twice. Yes, yeah. I noticed that. He says, yes. I feel yeah. like a heel, which can't be coincidental. <laughs> right? They have Nasty. to realize that that's a <laughs> that's, crucial that's piece wrestling, of wrestling yeah. terminology. Right. <laughs> and sure. then, but in that scene where he shows up and he's the fucking devil and he's killing the cops you can't help but root for him over the cops, right? And he <laughs> is now the hero saving the, like, half-wit man-child, well, Barton. And let, and let me toss it. One of the reasons why the cops come off is, I mean, they're unsympathetic because they say to him, fake, that's Jewish, isn't it? Um, and they, but but it's, it's also worth pointing yeah. out, I don't remember the last names of the cops off the top of my head, but one of the last names is German and one of the last names is Italian. So, like, it's, uh. it's, it's crucial that World War II is about to start and, the, and you have an Italian and a German guy being like, hey, are you Jewish? Like, so they feel extra menacing in that regard. Gotcha. Um, and for uh, how awful the cops' characters were, my God, that scene, that scene where they're interrogating him in the hotel lobby is just like, that is that is grade A fucking Coen Brothers dialogue but, you right know, there. Like, that the is, that is, 
<laughs> you know, normally we say that there's no that uh, there's no useless information that you could give us, but uh, <laughs> that was really that was actually useless information. Oh, I can't and it's exactly a brilliant like scene while they're also like totally like hackneyed uh, movie cops, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh yeah, they are, they are caricature of bad cop number one and caricature <laughs> of bad cop number two, but they're supposed to be. Yeah, I think uh, the the thing that I liked most about this movie is that everyone in it is really good. You know, they they all played their parts really well. And, Steve uh, Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Right. My name's Chet. You know, and this is before he was famous. This is yeah. before he was the. This is before he was the waiter for you know five seconds in Pulp Fiction. You know, he's uh he's great. And John Goodman is is a national treasure and has been for decades and decades. You know, I'd see him in anything. I mean, yeah, everybody. John Turturro's amazing. Fucking Judy Davis is every movie she is ever in is fucking incredible. Um, I I grew up watch. I loved Woody Allen movies when I was a kid. It was extremely inappropriate, and uh, she is in like a ton of them, uh, and is unbelievable in all of them. Um, she's um, even in that. She's in that Netflix show ratchet that i don't want to watch because i think it's a dumb idea and i don't like ryan murphy very much as a writer but the cast is like unfucking believable if you look at the cast of that so i don't know i might wind up watching it speaking of woody allen i think there might be as much of an influence of him in here as uh, as david lynch as well like in, that, that in, it's, in the, it's the it's the nebishy it's the nebishy protagonist it's really yeah. it, you know the neurotic yeah. writer who somehow this beautiful woman exactly takes pity on and just you know the only the only the only woody allen aspect missing is that she's too old yeah it was because the, 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 Co- the coen movie, brothers she would have been, high, she she been william mm-hmm. falker's daughter <laughs> right. the, the coen brothers are definitely the mario to uh the wario of uh of woody <laughs> allen i think um where they That's it's good. like it's like a lot of the same energies but like nobody's marrying their <laughs> stepdaughter <laughs> By the way, Jeff, when we were talking about doing this episode, you mentioned that, you know, this uh, that this film reminds you of Kafka. And I think especially the scenes with with Audrey, right, are straight out of the trial and the and the way that he encounters women, uh, that Kay encounters women there. And I think the idea of him being um, like coming to Hollywood with like not a clear idea of what his job is yep. reminds me a lot of the castle and the land surveyor and all that oh, stuff. Oh, and the the scene where I like uh, especially just in terms of like like the purposeful obfuscation of things and like purposefully confusing the main character when the studio head is like uh, or not the studio head um when um uh Tony Shaloub is like, "Oh, we're going to, you know, you need to see some wrestling pictures. All right, I'll send you right. down to the screening room." <laughs> and instead of showing him a movie they show him the dailies dailies. from another wrestling movie which like watching the dailies for a movie that's being shot now is going to give you nothing is i will destroy you (laughs) yeah and the other he certainly wouldn't like go see any wrestling i mean the the other the other kafka thing too is just like is is he's 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 alienated and alone in a world where nothing makes sense you see this by the way also in alice in wonderland it's the same formula is that someone is in a? There are rules, but I don't understand what any of them are. Um, and and you just because he's outside the circle of the rule makers, right? But also also that the movie insists on dumping him lost at the end. Like that's the most Kafka thing 
is 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 how radically lost he is at the end. Of, I mean, I, I I'm gonna argue that actually he has some he's gained some knowledge, but he's pretty unmoored from everything at that point. He has inner knowledge for the first time, but is completely you know what happens next. He's in limbo. He's in he, his scripts being owned by the studio. Um, are ve- it, it, that's a very Kafka esque kind of limbo. You can write, but we'll never publish anything you write. Well, right. and there's a he's either it like there's you know like I said there's an interpretation where. You know, you could definitely say that, like, oh, like, at some point he's, like, murdered by John Goodman and he is now in hell and we're watching him. That's one interpretation. But there's also very – he is very much in the metaphorical hell that any writer would be in where it's just like, oh, you have to keep writing for us forever and no one will ever see it. Yeah. It's never going to go out there, but you have to keep doing it for us. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I so I, I was gonna unless anybody had another point, I was going to ask. Uh, let's get to the yeah. either fun, most fun, or most stupidest question, which is what do you, do you ha- do you have a literal interpretation of this movie? Do you have a thing where you're like this is what I think happened, and I think that we just saw a certain interpretation of it, but this is what I think happened. You asking me now, I assume, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah no, yeah, I'm not asking yeah. these schmucks. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do, I do have a, a, a pretty strong sense of it. Although, I, I mean, I, I, this is, this is not probably what you're expecting, but it's, um, like, I, the, there's a, there's a type of fan theory that that is very prevalent in David Lynch, um, studies or whatever. Um, I feel like I know already what you're gonna say. Yeah, here. which is, which is that 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 it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you treat art as like a code, and the job is mm-hmm. to decode it. Um, sure. or to solve it in some way. And the problem is, is that there are people who don't want to solve things. Uh, and they're just like, man, just like, let it wash over you, the union energies of the universe. And I don't really get along with those people either. Um, but there's another kind of person who's like, this is confusing. Confusing things make me angry. I want a solution. And then I stop thinking about this thing. Um, and I think it's neither chaos energies washing over us and it's meaningless and anybody who tries to understand it is absurd but it's also not john goodman's the devil and he right and 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 Turturro's in hell and right like it's that's a that's an attempt to solve something because you don't want to live with the mystery of it um whereas i think what, what the, the, I think the better way. I just to want to quickly it, point out that's yes, not actually what I thought it was. That was no, just no, no. An, yeah. an, an interpretation I thought was possible. But yeah. no, 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 and and, and here's I th- I don't think you're wrong. I think the movie a hundred percent suggests exactly what you said. It's just that it also suggests other possibilities, and they're all floating around. And I don't think we need to necessarily resolve it into one or the other. But your observation, I think, is completely correct. It's that it, it absolutely of course it feels like hell. The whole building's on fire, and it magically burns. My favorite, it burns as John Goodman walks. The hallway catches fire with every step. Um, it's also stunning to watch this thing because I've been watching um, Lovecraft Country, which is quite good. Mm. Um, oh, so fucking uh, good! But I, I gotta say, and, and this is I'm showing my age here, and I'm, I, I am Norma Desmond. Um, but like. CGI fire doesn't look right, uh, and 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 there's mm. there's repeated CGI fire throughout Lovecraft Country, and it because because the, there's a burning building that they walk out of, and like holy shit, techno- it was better in 1991. And I love CGI fire because it means no one gets hurt, and I let's do that. But still, if I actually having watched a movie that's been made in the past, I gotta say the fire in that Barton Fink scene is flawless. That scene looks. So good, particularly because it's before CGI. Oh, 
Well, and getting into getting into the whole idea of wrestling being about uh, showcasing these like authentic things that a, an actor can't really reproduce like John the fear in John Turturro's eyes when he is surrounded by actual flames is very real like that is oh, not yeah. he is a great actor he was not acting in that moment I don't think like, I mean for me like laying in bed after watching the film and having all the scenes flashing through my head and like trying to find the significance in all of them and put it all together. That's the fun. Yes. That's, yeah. that's what the yes. movie does for me is give me that feeling yeah. that I want to understand it, but can't really entirely. So it's like um, getting to, it's kind of like getting this. I felt this movie is more, it, it is more concrete than like than like a Lynch film or small, but like you know like what Lynch's movies are great because it's like you get to watch somebody else's dream who's better at dreaming than you, yeah, and whose dreams are a little bit more maybe have more of a through line. This um, goes is, back and there to is some... a logic to it. It has a type yes, of logic. Right. It makes a kind of sense. Um, yeah. Okay. And sometimes I think it makes like maybe not a cognitive sense, but an emotive sense, yeah. right? It's supposed yeah. to make you feel a certain way. And that's the meaning of yeah. it is not necessary. And, but this, it kind of goes back to something that we said in an episode that hasn't come out yet, which is always weird. But, um, you know, I'm very comfortable in that hall of mirrors of pro wrestling where, you know, I don't know what's real and what isn't. And that's really fun. Yeah. And I, I, I think the, 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 the sensation is similar to the one that you get from uh, a film like this. Yeah, and my my basic my and I think I think that's I think that is really the I think that is really the right way to, to think about what it's doing. Like my my basic take on the movie, right, is that the what the very first thing you see in the movie is wallpaper, right? It's it's something that covers something else up. The whole point of wallpaper is to cover something. Um, the second thing you see in the movie is backstage at a theater. This sets up a pattern that the movie repeats and repeats and repeats, which is there's the thing that covers something up, and then there's the thing on the other side of that thing, the thing you're not supposed to see, right? And I get, I know the wallpaper. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors with the wallpaper in the theater, the back of the backstage of the theater. But the point is, is that the movie constantly gives you here's a surface, and then goes, do you want to go on the other side of the surface? And Barton always wants to go on the other side he wants to because his whole thing his whole ethos as a writer is he's got a he's plumbing the depths right he wants the truth you know real truth of it rich people and their pretensions and artifice he's got to plumb those that's the life of the mind um he's got to have it well that kind of goes with him selecting that hotel you know the 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 head of the studio was like oh we need to get you in a better hotel he's like no i need you know (laughs) Yeah, you can say in my house, oh, you don't want something so Hollywood. But it's part of the great folly of Barton's character. You know, he wants the dingy hotel because it's the common man experience. But no, it's not. And there's nothing really common about this hotel. And as much as he wants to plumb the depths of the, you know, the, the, the experiences of the minds of regular people, as we already brought up, he has plenty of opportunity to do so on a practical level, but he's so into his own yeah. mind, he never does. And, this is a- and when it comes to... Go. Uh, well, I was going to say, when it comes to storytelling, as, as I was suggesting at the beginning, like the meat of a story 
is really this conflict between like good and evil and between these like basic characters. It, it's wrestling. Um, what's an artist, like an artistic writer or filmmaker brings to the table that's interesting and sophisticated, that's the artifice. That's the window dressing. Yeah. So like the thing that, that he's really good at and the, and the studio head keeps saying, you know, I want that Barton Fink feel, right? That, what that is is not the depths. It's the surface. Yeah. <laughs> right. This, and this movie, the number of images of surface and depths because a lot for a lot of people like this movie is just full of random shit happening. But when you see that it's it, they're what they're what they are essentially is variations on a theme, um, which is here's the surface. Do you want to go on the other side of the surface? And some of them are in silly, stupid places. So like John Goodman has a tie, but then secretly on the other side of the tie, oh, there's a naked girl. Um, like and then there's the box. And then there's the box. And, and, the, <laughs> and the, bo- the box is the most important. The box is the most important one. But on the way to the box, right? We've got. Um, William Faulkner, we, 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 we've got William, we got, we, I can even call him William Faulkner. By the way, by the way, when he <laughs> knocks on the door of, of the sort of bung, bungalow room that, that William Faulkner is in, um, the movie William Faulkner is writing is called Slave Ship. Um, the actual William Faulkner actually did work on a movie called Slave Ship, and guess who it starred? Wallace Beery. Um, uh... like, the Cullen Brothers' attention to detail in this movie is insane. By the way, what is the title of Fink's script? I didn't quite. Oh, I don't. Catch it. I don't. Can I tell you? I don't remember off the top of my head. Did I they, also. I also. They don't show remember. it. I don't know. Maybe you can't see Nobody it. They can, show. They show the title page. Oh, I don't. I don't. I don't remember. Maybe it's indistinct. Um, but like, so Faulkner. What the surface is? Greatest American novelist in history. Um, and then if you go under, if you go on the other side of that wallpaper, who's the man on the other side of the curtain? He's a drunk and a fraud. Right. Charlie seems like a nice guy. And then on the other side, he's a serial killer and a Nazi. Right. Um, um, the the even the even the final image of the movie. Actually, I should skip. I'm not going to go to that. But there's a drain and you go in the drain. Uh, you get you, you start with something you see every day, a sink. And then you go underneath the surface seeing shit you're not supposed to see, like the drain pipes, the horn. They got you into the musical instrument. That's not something there's the surface, the horn. And then in the hole you go. Um, and actually, one of the final images of the film is of the surface of the water, and then the bird plunges below the deck Plunge, onto credits, yeah. right? Um, so again <laughs> yeah, and again and, and again, Barton is presented with a, a, a covering of some kind, and he he all he chooses to go on the other side of that, and the things on the other side are bad. They're bad right. shit. Like it, like it's it's the truth that he's searching for turns out every time to be like pretty ugly. Um, and he's never like, yay, I'm this, glad I know what that is. And this, this goes to like, there's, there's this idea in Nietzsche, um, which is that truth might not be the thing that you really want. That when you uncover things, it's like, that's, that's nihilism, right? There's yeah. really nothing there. It's, and it's to your peril. Yeah to 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 search and what we want is more and more interesting um artifice but because we have this drive to truth we're constantly going to be breaking through the artifice we're going to constantly start disbelieving in the in the things that we believed in and i think you know one of the questions that a movie like this asks is like what happens when you can no longer suspend disbelief in anything yeah 
and and actually, if I can add, the, the thing you're saying about Nietzsche, I always think of this this joke that Henry David Thoreau tells. Um, I think it may be the very beginning of Walden, or the maybe it's the beginning of the conclusion of Walden. But he tells a joke about um, a man with a horse comes to a bog, and there's a boy there, and he says to the boy, "Does this bog have a hard bottom?" And the boy says, yes, it does. So the guy takes the horse into the thing, and he, and he ends up sinking all the way up to his neck. And he looks back at the kid, and he says, I thought you said that this swamp had a hard bottom. And the kid said, it does. You're not halfway to it yet. Um, and like that, I think that's, I think that's <laughs> yeah. really crucial for Barton Fink. Like, there, are, there is a hard bottom. There is truth. But it's it's going to fucking kill you. It's not good for you. It's not healthy for you. Like, this is not, this is not helping you out. You want to live in the picture with the with the girl looking looking at the ocean. Yeah, right. You don't actually want to be on the beach with this box. Right. So the box. <laughs> the box. Yeah. Well, before before Which... I get the, before I get to the box, um, the, the the other the other crucial What's thing about box? this film is the yeah I know I feel it's like it's like a seven right that's all I can hear is that what right, right. all is seven. It's, I guess that's is I mean I guess I doubt it's like a direct reference but I mean there's one thing that I that it seems to be most likely in the box yes um, that right. is a lot like what winds up being in the box but, it, but again think about think but think about likelihood in a movie where in a movie where Lipnick kisses the soles of his feet when he refuses to tell him what the project is about. When like Charlie turns out to be a Nazi and a madman, where right, True. and I, I gave it the list already, right? But like, like, but there, there, there's you're constantly surprised, always. Like, like Lipnick fires Lou Breeze, and then Lou Breeze is just back to work, like for that final scene yeah, with right. Lipnick. He's probably fired him dozens right? of times. But like, whatever you expect is not, it's not going to go that way. Like every time Barton thinks he he knows what's going to happen, every time we think. We know what's going to happen next. It's ne- he writes his masterpiece, and they hate it, right? He he broke Geisler's heart. <laughs> you mentioned the the scene where Audrey turns up dead, but just like, how does that start with him swatting the mosquito? And you think, oh, is she going to wake up and be mad or like? Yeah. What, well, no, we we do not expect like all the yeah. blood from the mosquito and then all of the other fucking blood. A lot of a lot of the a lot of the questions that come up through the movie. You know, a lot of the points in the movie where it asks, like, well, what do you think happened? I felt like I was able to, at least for myself, think of something concretely that, like, that made sense for me. I really could not answer that question for myself with Audrey. Like, I really... Because there's, like, there's really three possibilities, right? And, like, right. Uh, and uh, where it's, uh, like, either Barton did it. Or she killed herself, or, or John Goodman s- or Charlie snuck in yeah. and did it, and I I could not answer that question for myself well, um, in a way. Yeah. So uh, sorry, Audrey's Audrey's death is also part of again. This is my third and final list here, basically. Um, but but it's part of a it's part of a a, a trend in the movie of radical ambiguity. Um, so just like, it, and one of my favorite that my the favorite example is that when he hears John Goodman making noise before he meets Char before he meets Charlie, but he hear, he hears a noise, and it is impossible to tell whether it is crying or laughter. Um, and to be extra crazy, um, there are two sentences that Charlie says when he comes over to Barton's room that indicate both. At one point, he's like, "Oh, a little too much with the late night revelry. Sorry about that, pal." But then earlier, he was like. And I, I'm a pretty successful salesman, despite what you might have heard tonight. Like one of those sentences indicates that he was yeah. crying and the other one that he was laughing yeah. and they don't resolve it. 
Um, and then in the, the neighbors in the next room who you never see, it's very unclear whether that is sex noises or violence right. noises. Like I can't, I can't tell. Um, and how and Audrey's death seems impossible, right? That somehow mm -hmm. while Barton is sleeping, she is killed in such a way that when he touches her, all the blood comes spilling out of her. But like what, it, it just it doesn't make any sense. Char did Charlie <laughs> snuck in the room and like, no. And the whole thing about his mosquito bites, and they keep saying there aren't any mosquitoes in this is, California. This is Los Angeles. Mosquitos are in a swamp. Los Angeles is in the desert. desert. <laughs> um, but even, even, yeah, and right. yeah, all right. Um, um, no, and, and, and also, like, the fact, like, when he, you know, when he hits the mosquito and all the blood comes out, to my, my reading of that was also like, this is something that must have just happened. Yeah. Like, this is, her, her death must have just had like there's no way that this happened several hours ago because then she would have yeah, already bled yeah, out yeah um yeah and and this is and this is it really... almost feels as if hitting the mosquito is what does it well yeah totally yeah. right? that's because how that's it presents dream logic it. that's so, dream right. logic right when you hit a mosquito that's you expect logic, to see right. blood and here comes the blood it's you know, right that's direct dream logic um but like it's also but the these actually i'm gonna go right into the my, my main point um but like all of these mis all of these ambiguities right they they culminate in the end of the movie, where by the way, right before the last scene, it's unclear if Charlie, if if Barton's whole family has been beheaded. Um, like he's called. I love that he also asks the operator for Uncle Morty. Like it's not the operator's Uncle Morty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and right. and and this is and this is the thing is Barton's Barton's whole thing has been delving. Oh, actually, I'm going to do, do a little sidebar before I get to that. Um, but like one of the one of the things that comes up is this idea of art and film. Uh, as an escape um so that because that's one of the things we think about movies like the, the sort of like popular pictures or whatever being about i just want to escape from reality for a little while and be in a movie theater but like interestingly william faulkner says that i, I keep calling sorry I, he's always faulkner in my head maybe uh, that's fine i've already <laughs> forgotten the character's name yeah, it's fine that's, yeah. that's fine call um, so but, but, we, we'll but, call charlie we call charlie gun john right, goodman yeah, a bunch of times yeah. so why, why not, not? Um, but so, so, but Faulkner's point is that he drinks to escape, and Barton talks about it damages your gift, and 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 Faulkner actually says truth is something doesn't bear scrutiny, like you don't want to look, I don't want to look at the truth, and I drink alcohol to escape. And Charlie's whole deal as a serial killer is that people are in pain, people are hurting, and I'm going to help them escape this terrible world by cutting their head off. Um, but at the same time. He there's there's an intimation that he's actually getting revenge on Barton for like calling the the um, concierge on him or whatever. Yeah. And then in one of those Which, in one of those classic reversals, as soon as Barton says, I'm sorry, he's like, ah, that's OK. Right. Like, it's never what you think it's going to be. But that part sort of makes sense, like in the context of the larger film, like, oh, yeah, he's invading John Goodman's world. You know, he's this guy from New York who thinks he's, he understands the common man. And what is right. and and what happens at the end? John Goodman goes back into his burning room. Like I live here. Yeah. I live in this world of wrestling films, and you know, after 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 going to Barton's world and going and possibly murdering his family and coming right. back. And, and that's right? a, that's another ambiguity of the film is we never see inside Charlie's apartment. Um, that that yeah. he, cause he says, Oh, my room's a mess. You don't want to go in there. My, it, and like, I, what the, we, anything could be going on in there. I have no idea. Um, right. all of these ambiguities culminate in the end of the movie because Bar Barton, Barton doesn't listen. And I think hilariously, um, it's really funny to, to me that the point. reason he doesn't listen 
is because he's too busy shouting theories about his theories about the common man prevent him from listening to the common man. Um, right. And I think there's a lesson in there about how our theories about the movie Barton Fink, our theories about David Lynch, prevent us from actually watching the movie that he made because we want to have a theory about it to make it make sense. And this is why at the, at the end of the film, there's two really crucial things that happen, um, which is Barton makes the script and it's rejected. And they say, we don't want to watch a guy wrestling with his soul. And he says, I wanted to show you something beautiful. But I think Barton Fink is the movie about a guy wrestling with his soul and John Goodman in the burning building feels like hell and that girl feels like heaven. Um, and he and it's something beautiful. Um, but our theories about the movie prevent us from actually seeing the movie that the Coen brothers made. And that's why the guy, the, the big ending of the movie is that he goes out on the beach and the, the beautiful woman comes over and she says, the question that's on all of our minds, what's in the box? And he says, I don't know. And then she says, isn't it yours? And he says his last line in the movie. Oh, hey, it says one more, but he says, I don't know. Like it's that. And that's after John Goodman says, I lie. Yeah. It's not mine. It's not mine. Um, right? right. So that like, to me, this is a movie about a guy who learns to just live with the fucking mystery. He could open the box and find out what's in there. But every time he tries to go on the other side of a surface, it's bad underneath. And in the end, he doesn't open the box to find out what's inside. Because how did that go for him the whole fucking movie? And it's funny to me when you get people who watch the movie and they desperately want to know what does Barton, what does Barton think the movie means? Solve it for me. But like that, the whole character's journey is learning to just live with, I don't know. And it, especially if you look at it in the context of the Coen brothers filmography up until that point where their movies up until then, like raising Arizona and, uh, and Miller's crossing and stuff were all these like very like plot dense, like complicated movies with a very clear plot that maybe still had some strangeness yeah. to them and some surreal moments but there was there was nothing. I mean, there was nothing ambiguous in Miller's yeah, Crossing, it's not the right? Like, I mean, it lay, yeah, it lays everything out with you, and it all it felt a bit like them also maturing a bit as artists and like learning the power that is in that ambiguity and learning like we don't have to we do it doesn't have to be this like hyper complex like either like weird redneck screwball comedy kind of thing like raising arizona or this like hyper dense film noir and it kind of it, it was making me like thinking about this movie and thinking about miller's crossing made me think a lot about the big lebowski which would come eight years later yes. which is the ultimate synthesis of their weird surrealistic ambiguity and a super hyper dense complica complex plot because The Big Lebowski is a movie that has a a an incredibly dense and complicated story and is also just fucking about some guy who doesn't know what's going on and that's the just sort of floating through life like a dream. Yeah, and and, it and really also is, notice Leba Lebowski. Yeah. Lebowski would be able to live with the mystery, man. Like just about yeah, just right. abide. But Lebowski doesn't want to yeah. know. He really doesn't, and not in a malicious, in a healthy way. way. Lebowski is very comfortable. Just sitting in his yeah, house. The quest after solving Please stuff don't. gets into trouble, and, and Lebowski's just—he just abides. That's what—that's what Fink learns right, to do in this about. movie: is just to abide. He's gonna sit on the beach and look at the waves and just abide. 
the thing with like the plot of Lebowski, like you said, Evan, it's a very complicated plot. You know, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, as they would say in the movie. In Barton Fink, nothing that actually happens, like anything concrete that unambiguously happens, really matters. It's actually you a know, very it, simple it, story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like it, the the whole thing where he's the him writing a script doesn't really matter. The script isn't going yeah. anywhere. Him going to Hollywood. It's Pure all coffee. about yeah. him wrestling with his soul. And it's about the characters and their their internal, really just Barton's internal, you know, bullshit. In the, and we all have tons of it. In the immortal wor- words of uh, Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force, it, it, don't, it, it doesn't don't matter. matter. None of this matters. None of this matters. None of this matters. I, That's a good car. This movie was also <laughs> extremely, it was very resonant for me on a personal level because uh, something something I have been trying to deal with in therapy lately and also in retrospect in my entire 36 years on this earth so far. Um, That's therapy. I am terrible at compartmentalizing. Like I can't do I do I don't really understand how other people do it. Like I can do it to some degree, like just like you you can't actually function in the world if you can't kind of do it. But like, you know, in the last since fucking covid hit and in the last 4 years as we entered the the final stages of hopefully not society in general, but the final stages certainly of something it's become much more difficult. Like I, you know, I, I, everybody is having a hard time during COVID certainly, but like I, I know some people, I see people in my everyday life who seem to be able to, to stop thinking about it for like five seconds. And I just, I just, I just can't. And when, and when William Faulkner is like, you don't want to know, you don't want the truth. You don't want to get too deep in there. You don't want to think about it. I was just like, Oh my God, like this has been because like my therapist keeps being like, like, look, like I'm not saying she says she's like, look, it's not like it's unreasonable for you to feel these things. But she's like, it's you can't do anything about it. Like you can do. There are things that you can, you know, some things you can do, but then you do. There is a point at which you have to accept that you just have to live your life and shit's going on. And then, I mean, there was a lot more, you know, she wasn't just like, yeah, go fucking figure it out. I mean, like she's a cognitive behavioralist. We have a whole plan going on, but it's still like, I, I, yeah, this, this movie, cause he also seems like a guy who like, not necessarily that I saw myself in Barton, but like he cannot, I don't know. I it, not that he was about not that the compartmentalization was about him specifically, but this move uh, something something about this movie made me I mean, feel he, something resonant as, with that that I can't quite articulate. As Jeff was well, saying, I think, he, I think your point. I think yeah. your point is made well yeah. enough. And even though you can't quite find the words you're looking for, I think that's very appropriate with the movie. <laughs> that you know the, the meaning is very deep and you can feel it, but you can't quite explain it. So no, I, I completely dig. But just for me, I dig what you're saying, Evan, a lot. But, I'm sorry, Ben, I cut you off. What no, do you say? No, I mean, as Jeff was just saying about Lebowski, right? Like, he can just abide, right? He can just right. kind of, like, deal with, with what's going on and, and, and not have to... Uh, Everyone around him is like, Lebowski, right. all of this shit! And he's like... And I'm, oh, I'm really glad that you brought up bald. this, like, larger... Right, the therapy thing, I think, is really important because there there is, like, a much... It's Barton Fink is, like, a much bigger... It's not just about this one guy, right? These are, like, large kind of, like, mental cosmic issues. Um, but like one of the things I think like the image of someone who demands an interpretation, there is one person in the movie who absolutely demands an interpretation. Um, and it's Nebuchadnezzar. 
Uh, Faulkner. I was going to ask about yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. Faulkner. Right, it's not just the spaceship from the Matrix. Um, the Fa- the Faulkner character, which also puzzles me. I know. Now, I like, don't know. When I was, I was like Nebuchadnezzar. Why would the heroes I have, have a ship? No I, 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 I it think just it just is a bad. word that sounds cool. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah that's I, all. I, I think that's as much. Cool. Yeah. I, I still really like the yeah. Matrix whenever I see it, but it screams in every way. This is going to sound really cool yeah. exactly when it comes out, I th- and it does. I, would ar- yeah. I will argue with anybody that I think the Wachowskis are geniuses on a similar level to the Coen brothers, but subtlety is not... There, there no. is no subtle like Sense Eight is one of my I favorite things ever made. Sense ever made. It's so incredible. Much. It's X Men and... plus bisexual polyamory, and I am yeah. fucking oh, here for it. That's yeah, there's a word it's... for that, and it's called utopia. It is. It truly is. Is <laughs> Sense Eight is truly a a a show about how good we could be. Yeah. Um, and it is also the least subtle thing. Like there is no, no they do, no the concept of, if they're, none. If they're if they're if they're if there's a thing that if there that is something is supposed to represent, they'll just fucking they'll say, say it, it to yeah. you, and then and then everyone will have sex, and you'll be fine with it. By the way, I've been wanting Evan and Jeff to meet each other for a really long yeah, time. Yeah, I, I do. Really this is wonderful. It was yeah. a really cool really encapsulation well. of what I hoped but, would but happen. But like Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, so Nebuchadnezzar is the name of Faulkner's book. Uh, obviously, a reference to like Absalom, Absalom, which is also named after a Bible, uh, you know, name. Um, but like the other, the other thing about Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar says, "Interpret my dream for me, and if you fail to do it, I will chop you into little pieces." Like that is the image of someone who demands the violence of demanding an interpretation, um, the willingness to kill to get one, to, right? And and this is this is what we're trying to avoid. And I, I'm going to make, I, I have like one more point to make. Um, and I'm, and I, I think I will have said my piece. Um, but like, this is really tied into Judaism. Like this is, this is very, very tied into Judaism, which is that like, like, I feel like there's like, like two of the big competing theories about how to deal with, I mean, there's a lot of them, but like two of the big ones that, that people go for is like hedonism, just like have as much fun as you fucking can before you die. And then like, there's a Christianity thing where it's like, no, 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 it's not about your personal pleasure. Why don't you try putting yourself aside and sacrifice and like do the right thing for other people. But if you actually look at Christianity and the Coen brothers make this point in a serious man, which is maybe the most Jewish movie ever made, and I love it so much. I need I need to see that one. It's, I've heard I've heard a lot. It's yeah. amazing. Um, but they make this point, which is that actually, if you think about it, Christianity is just a different form of hedonism because Christianity says, make your sacrifices here and you will be rewarded with pleasure in heaven. So it's really just like a, it's like right. it's like those teenagers who are told by pastors that the longer they that they wait to have sex before marriage, it'll be so much better. So it's like delay. It's delayed pleasure, but it's just it's hedonism is immediate pleasure. And Christianity is delayed pleasure. Pleasure. Judaism, though, there's no heaven. There's no hell. God commands you to do things and you do them not because it's going to get you into heaven, but because you were fucking commanded to do it. Um, and so there's like a radical irrationality in Judaism where you are they're commandments. They're just things you've been commanded to do. And that's why the Torah, the God in the Torah is like, hey, Abraham, fucking kill your kid right now. No, there's no reason. Just fucking do it. Um, and then, right, and or, or uh, Job, we're just we're going to fuck with this guy. And then when Job is like, can you please make this make sense? He's like, shut the fuck up. I made the fucking whale. You didn't make a whale. Go eat a dick. So, like, 
they the the we, that was in the original Greek too, no, that, and it yeah, sounds so much is, better than in English. Yeah, which is so weird because there is this like tradition of interpretation and trying to understand the the Torah that's in the Talmud and that kind of stuff. So it's just this like it's something essentially irrational that part of the commandment is to continuously try to make sense of it because all of which really encapsulates being yeah, Jewish all of the ra- very all, well all of the, all of the sort of theories and, and readings and the Talmud is about trying to make sense out of what is fundamentally radical God because because the Christians like if you're a Protestant right my mother has like her own personal Jesus that you know and Jesus like walks with you on the beach and those were that was when I carried you and your footprints in this shit right but in Judaism like God isn't like a nice guy that walks with you. He's like a pillar of fire or he's a fucking tornado. And Moses goes to get the tablets and God is like, don't, you can't look at my face. Like you don't get to see me. And in fact, one of the least talked about parts of the Torah is God attempts to murder Moses for no fucking reason. And that, that there's a little footnote where they try to explain it. It is unexplainable. God swoops down in the middle of the night on the road and tries to kill Moses. Um, and his wife circumcises somebody, his son, his, his him, the, the, the Hebrew is ambiguous there, but like the point, and then he just goes away. Um, so like there's, it, it's a, it's a, there's like a radical unknowability that is built into Judaism. And I think it's, it's built into Barton Fink and his Jewish experience. That's why it's really important that right at the beginning of the movie, the two characters he meets for dinner are like Poppy and something St. Clair. Like they're very waspy. Um, and he is the Jewish outsider um, because his relationship to like Judaism is like there's an irrational, unknowable core at the center of it. And I really think that's heavily reflected by Barton Fink. And it's why Barton Fink feels so much like Kafka, because it's essentially a commentary on the Torah in the same way that Kafka is a commentary on the Torah. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna be really be able to do anything better than that. Um, I will it was say, a good movie. Yeah, I liked it. Fantastic movie. I will say, if you like, big you men like in movie. tights, big physically and mentally, but especially physically. Um, I will say, Jeff, you should. You know, sometimes we talk about how would this podcast work. Like, if I needed to take a break for a while or something, how would we have? Well, like who would I had this thought in the shower myself and doc be able to because I (laughs) think that you would get a lot. I have been endlessly fascinated by how much more there is to wrestling than I ever gave a credit for. And especially and now I really kind of do feel like in some ways it is the only like legitimate avant garde theater that ever exists because it is the only it is the only form of storytelling that exists where you are really not supposed to know how much of it is real and how much of it is fake and you'll never know and you'll never have any idea can i bring that to the movie because that was a point that i wanted to make and forgot about in that like people very much have preconceived notions about what wrestling is, and this is not a new thing. They, at the time the movie's supposed to take place, they did, and those preconceived notions are very similar to the ones they're supposed to have today. Barton, I'm sure, not knowing anything about wrestling, probably thought he knew what wrestling was, and then when he saw, like... Yeah. You know, the clips of the actors trying to play wrestling, it probably didn't clarify anything. But the thing he didn't do, which so many people don't do 
is he didn't just go see some wrestling yeah. matches because it's it's so easy just to do and it's so illuminating if you just actually watch it for a change instead of trying to tell people what it is even though you've never actually watched a match he before. doesn't listen uh, and you find out you know and he doesn't listen you you find out that not only is there a lot more to it but there also really isn't <laughs> As the and, studio uh, heads, those are themes in this movie. Indeed, and in this podcast. Um, yes. And as as the studio head puts it, there's plenty of poetry right inside that ring. <laughs> it's true, you know that that's the deal. And, and I also, you know, something that I had, um, something that Barton should have realized, because you know the the issue that I noticed with wrestling right off the bat, like by like episode six of doing this, was that the, the thing that one of the things that makes it hard to get into wrestling is that you no know, somebody has to t- explain it to you somebody has to come somebody who knows what they're talking about has to tell you about the things that make it interesting or at least in my experience because i feel like if you just sit there and watch it in a vacuum like you might like pick up on some things here and there but like you're never going to actually to me what is makes wrestling so interesting is learning about the mechanics of how it works and then seeing how those mechanics play out. And I feel like there's, yeah, you need to have somebody come and tell you like, well, here's where it's quote unquote real and here's where it's quote unquote fake and here's where it's written and here's where it's improvised and here's what's authentic and here's where they're just fucking lying to you. And you know, here's the parts that's sort of like acting and here's the parts where they're not acting. And that's, once you know that, then wrestling gets far more interesting, but somebody has to tell it to you. And if you don't have that guidance, you have to want to watch it. So like, you know, I, I very often like when, when I'm watching wrestling in my apartment and my roommates who like don't watch it or whatever, they walk past and they can't really look at it. They don't, you know, like they don't want to. And, and so if you're not like, if you don't like Evan had this, you know, strange masochistic desire to do this podcast and, and, and get shown wrestling and get taught from our perspective, what, what we like about it. Um, you I'm, know, a, I'm you, a real entertainer. I, I'm, I'm willing <laughs> to sacrifice everything to bring laughter yeah. to the, to the, the 25 people. And there's who, a huge highbrow equivalent to that too, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen people who were dragged by their partners or parents or whatever to a museum an art museum and like they walk around and like they don't know what to do like there there's there's a painting they're definitely looking at an image but part of the problem is and again like barton fink they imagine everybody else is like doing something um when, right when you just like barton you just need to kind of abide with it but the the, the seek this actually i'm gonna quote kung fu panda um, it's a very fucking wise movie. Um, but in Kung Fu Panda, they're going after the big martial arts secret and then they get it and it's fucking blank. Um, and then he quits martial arts and he goes home and he's now going to give up martial arts and work in the soup kitchen with his dad. And his dad tells him the secret ingredient of the soup. And he says the secret ingredient is nothing. Uh, that like, it's just that people think there's a secret ingredient and so they think it tastes better. And then he tells them, and, and, and the guy, and the, the big revelation in Kung Fu Panda is the secret is there is no secret. Like you just, you gotta just be with it, man. Like it's, everybody else isn't in on something. You just gotta abide like the dude. I, um, so one of the, one of the most impactful moments of my life artistically, I tend to not, I don't really know anything about visual art, right? I, t- I tend to not... Not that I'm like, fuck paintings, but I just, I, I don't really know much about that, that sort of art. 
And I had a friend who was trying to get a job as a tour guide at the Guggenheim uh, years ago. And she reached out to me and she was like, hey, they're doing this thing. They, they have this exhibit up now that it's basically like the history of modern painting. Uh, like it starts with Jackson Pollock and then goes on. You should you should come with me. And, and she was like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to give a practice tour so I can work on so I can, I don't know, tell them that when I go and interview. And I was like, yeah, sure. It sounds awesome. And as we're going around, um, one of the paint she mentioned, she was like, oh, yeah, there's these, this guy, this guy, this guy. And then there's Mark Rothko. And Mark Rothko Rothko's was amazing. Uh, and it, it was it was a name I had heard. Love Rothko. Yeah. And it was also in my head at the time, Rothko was an example of like why I felt like I didn't get modern art because I would yeah. open up book. I would open up art books and look at pictures of his paintings and be like, it's it's stripes. I don't fucking get it. What is yeah. I don't understand what the, what's going on here. And like, and just like, not even necessarily like in a, you know, shitting on it kind of way, but I just, I, I was like, I guess I don't understand this because I don't, yeah. I don't see it. And when we actually got to the painting and she said, she was like, she pointed to a point on the floor and she was like, stand here, stand this distance from it and empty your mind yeah. and just look at it. And I act and I like basically started weeping in the middle of of the Guggenheim because I just like, I just, I, I, I can't even, I can't really explain it. I can't explain what the difference was. Yeah. I, I, I was seeing the same thing I had seen in, but just being there and being in front of it, I just, just like changed me. Yeah. And, and everybody so knows we need to take you looking at a painting and seeing <laughs> art. So we need to take you to see some live wrestling is, <laughs> Yeah, but this is something now I think that everybody, everybody understands because previous to COVID, right? I'm sure a lot of people are like, I, they see the painting in the book and they're like, I don't get it. But if you see it in real life, it's different. And people I'm sure are like, it's probably not. It's just bigger. This is dumb. But now that we're doing everything on Zoom, Something's missed. There's a there's a, there's an indescribable something that is missing, and that something, the difference between hanging out in real life and hanging out on Zoom, is the same difference between the art book and actually standing there in front of the fucking painting. And everybody has experienced this now. We all know something is fucking wrong with communicating this, with living in this way. And for me, it's been the difference between online teaching and in person teaching. Um, oh yeah. I've- um, I, I am Norma Desmond, and, and the talkies ruined movies. And I'm right, it's a, I, this technology, and, you know. Um, yeah. on, on that note, we're just about out of time, I think. Um, Thank you for having me. Jeff, this has been yeah. fantastic. You guys Dude. are amazing. Yeah, Jeff, oh, yeah. thanks so much for coming. Do you want to plug anything? No, I have nothing. I mean, go. Google me and follow me on social media. I'm the only person with my first and last name, so that should be real easy. At G E O F F K L O C K. Yes, it's Jeff with a it's it's Jeff, Jeff with a no. G as in Gnostic and Clock with a K as in knife, and Jeff has two Fs like in Philadelphia. It's high quality spelling right there. Thank you. Um, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, man, this was fantastic. Open uh, invitation to come back the anytime you want. Talk about anything you want, and the, yeah, yeah, we're Can gonna have to. We're gonna have to. I've never seen it. Sounds like a good idea. We'll do that sooner than later. I haven't. I haven't seen The Wrestler since I saw it in the theaters. And, uh, I mean, it was fantastic then. And, you know, burned into my mind, of course. Um, premium listeners, as always, we cannot thank you enough for your support. 
it um it really does it really makes a huge difference um and uh yeah i don't know reach out to us as always at contesting w on twitter let us know what you thought of this and uh, let us know if there's anything you should cover. Let us know if you went and saw Barton Fink for the first time. You can get it for about Barton Fink. Barton Fink. It's a shame that, Katie's for not that don't, For people that don't know, there's a Simpsons episode where Bart, his friends are going to go see a, you know, because Bart's a kid. They're going to go see a rated R movie and they're real excited about it and Bart can't go. And they leave cheering Barton Fink, Barton Fink, Barton Fink, because it's not like that's not. They, they think the rated R movie is going to be like salacious. It's not like we're going to see the Terminator. It, it, or which something, again, you know? I very much emphasize, yeah. empathized with how. Having seen it at seven years yeah. old, and there's a, there's well, a very, I, yeah, there's a similar Simpsons joke that I love when the, when they get fake IDs and they go see Naked Lunch, and and they leave, and and it's like the greatest Simpsons joke is Nelson just says, "I can think of exactly two things wrong with that title." <laughs> <laughs> I when I was in middle school, a uh, friend a friend of mine and I uh, told our parents that we were going to go see "I Know What You Did Last Summer." And instead, we were like, oh, like, let's go sneak into Boogie Nights, right? Because it's a hot movie about oh. porno. That is a dark, that is not the core of oh, that yeah. movie. That is no, a that is no. a dark examination of the human Duke. soul. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason yeah. the critics love that movie, yeah. and it wasn't because of the porno. Yeah. And we, tot- we totally walked, it was exactly like the Naked Lunch, where we just walked out, and we were like, that was not, that, is not- that wasn't what I was <laughs> in. I wish we had seen the stupid fucking horror movie. Right. I know what you did last yeah. summer, which is at the same time the stupidest and greatest title yeah. for a horror movie ever this has been contesting wrestling we love you yeah Peace.